morning we're looking at the last section, a pericope, if you will, of Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 40 through 45. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we do ask that you would instruct us, teach us, cause us to worship you, cause us to give you all the praise and honor and glory as you teach us, as you help us to become disciples who honor you, love you, and seek righteousness from you. We ask that you would build your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is a lot going on in these six verses. Mark is very vivid in his uh, displaying for us this event that happened. And there's so much in here that I think that, it will, that I will be taking two weeks on this section, this passage, to try to divulge it all at least two weeks. But, but not to worry. Uh, we'll give you some time to go home and get something to eat. Um, take a shower. Uh, some of you have to water the dog. So um, this tough crowd. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> there is a lot in this passage. And as long as my voice holds up, we'll endeavor to look at uh, this passage. I've divided it into two sections, uh, mainly 40 through 42 today, on the supreme will of Jesus. And sadly, it's something that I found uh, missing in most of the commentaries that I have. Just, um, it is a profound statement that Jesus makes in one word. But one of the phrases that I did encounter, which I have unashamedly adopted as my own, is the phrase, a parable in a miracle. And we know something about parables, and, and we know that we have to be careful with parables. Parables are stories that use scenes or objects, material things, circumstances to bring truth to life. And those material things on one plane help us to understand the effect of God's operation on a deeper plane. We read in the parables of Jesus about seeds and soil, uh, about meal and leaven, about landowners and slaves, about camels and needles. 
And yes, we have to be careful with those because uh, as our brother Chuck, when he taught on the parables out uh, before about those who would take every little thing in the parables and make something out of it, that this means this and this means this. And we have to be careful with that. But they're designed that it would draw our hearts and our minds, our, our souls, to comprehend that there is a greater work going on, greater than we might think. There is the instruction and understanding, but there is a teaching about our Lord, about who He is. The miracles, are they not called mighty works in the Scriptures? They're called signs and wonders. But the miracles, they, they tell a story they tell a story of these deeper things. When we read about a, the blind man on the side of the road saying, Son of David, you know, heal me. It, and he does that. It helps us understand when Jesus says elsewhere, I am the light of the world. Or when he feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves and a couple of fish. We understand better when he says, I am the bread of life. And when he calls forth his friend Lazarus from the grave and says, come forth. John helps us very vividly understand when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. We see these things in the miracles, the parables in the miracles. And, and here we have the, the miracle of the leper who came to him. And we need to have that in inquiry of ourselves. What, what is it meant to show? Who can heal someone of this horrific disease? And, and we, we look to Mark and see, well, how does Mark explain these things? What does he bring to light? Well, the first thing that I encountered here is that Mark disregards chronology. Uh, the other gospel writers, uh, and I guess you could say there's a disharmony here in terms of the gospels that Matthew and Luke put this right after the Sermon on the Mount. On that Sabbath day that had all of those events, they put the healing of the leper the first time the leper is mentioned. And this could be a different leper. It doesn't have to be him. But the words and the scene in Matthew and Luke are very, very close to what Mark has. And so we see that, that, you know, Mark puts this miracle on a different day and a different time, or at least we, we don't really have a time marker here, but it is a powerful exhibition of Jesus' command over the human condition, over the human body at the very outset. Leprosy was described in those days as living death. And according to Levitical law, a person who had leprosy was accounted as dead, as if they were dead. And the phrase that was used were they were unclean. And, and the rabbis would make that distinction even in Jesus' day. You are either clean or unclean. And if you're unclean, you are considered as one who was dead. It's uh, described in many places as a cutaneous disease, which means a disease of the skin, described as loathsome, diffusive, which means it spreads, and incurable, at least in that day. 
My understanding of modern day medicine is there are some 16 million people estimated who have been cured of leprosy um, over the last decades. But in those days, this apparently, uh, from what I can understand, the Arabic word used in the Hebrew text was to mean the white leprosy, the kind that was very difficult, if not impossible, to cure. But it became a symbol, and we see even in Leviticus, the symbol for sin and evil in a man. It, it was considered a curse from God if you had leprosy. And so Mark introduces us to this disease at this place. But he shows Jesus in this event as somewhat severe. Again, it's kind of puzzling. We've encountered this kind of thing before, but here are the words in verse 43. He sternly warned him. There is uh, something, there, there is a tinge of anger here with, with the man. Uh, a stern warning. And he says, say nothing to anyone. Uh, literally, it, it's say to no man nothing. Now, I, my mom was an English teacher, so I couldn't use double negatives. But in Greek, I understand that a double negative is a reinforcement. Do not do this thing, Jesus is saying. And it may be, and it perhaps was, it was to me, to you, um, in verse 41, when we read the word, and he was moved with compassion, it could be translated, and he was angry. And, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, but we think of Jesus in here. We, we, we grab onto that word and moved with compassion. It, but it's a word that, that has a very deep significance of all the words that can mean, the three words meaning compassion. This is the one that has the greatest mixture of things, of pain and action, of, of feeling something guttural and reacting to it and wanting to do something about it. And yet it is possible that Jesus was angry with the leper. But I think it also foreshadows a growing opposition to Jesus' ministry. So far, we haven't encountered anything. The, the crowds are coming after Jesus day and night. People are, are, are seeking him out, bringing their sick, bringing their demon-possessed, coming to him, finding him somehow as the leper did, and I don't know how he got this close. But they're coming to him. And I believe that Mark takes this event and puts it where he does and shows us what he does with the phrase about Jesus here that he uses in order to help us understand not only what's about to come in chapter 2 and 3, where we read things like this, he is blaspheming, they said, he eats with sinners, or your disciples do not fast, or what you are doing is not lawful on the Sabbath, or as we see in chapter 3, they began taking counsel as to how they might destroy him. I think Mark is setting us up to understand the opposition that is coming against Jesus and his teaching and what he's doing 
And not only does it help us understand what we're about to read, but I think if we do not understand the opposition that Jesus faced, I don't think we really understand the crucifixion and why they put him to death and why that was necessary for the plan of God. And so Mark puts this miracle here, this parable in a miracle. But Mark also doesn't tell us if the man who was cured obeyed Jesus or not. Yeah, we know what he did immediately. He went out <laughs> and he started telling everybody. And it made it very difficult for Jesus to carry on his ministry. And sometimes I think we're tempted to think that Jesus would be consumed. Here is a man who is wanting to build a ministry, does he not? Doesn't he want to have followers? Doesn't he want to get his message across? Do you think he would be like the other ones in the Galilee region that we understand? It was quite prevalent for a man to gather followers, go out in the desert and begin to build his following. Would Jesus be consumed with what people think about him? Well, even with all of these miracles, even with these things that Jesus did, even with a man like the leper saying, I know that you can make me clean, what does Jesus ask his disciples in Mark chapter 8? Who do the people think that I am? <laughs> and they said, well, Elijah or, you know, John the Baptist come back. You know, it's almost as if people didn't really know that. And yet Jesus brings it back to his disciples, those that he had called to follow him. And he says, yeah, yeah, okay. But who do you say that I am? That is what Mark is wanting us to see. Who do you say that he is? Who do you know him to be? And just as Jesus did when he would give them a parable. He would speak a parable to them. We read of Jesus saying phrases to call them to understanding, to understand on that deeper plane. And I believe that he still calls us in this parable in a miracle to do the same. He would use phrases like, so how much more then? Or when he would finish the parable, he would say, surely now I say to you, or his favorite phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The lesson, the miracle has a story, and the story is a miracle. And let us press on, as Paul says, press on to know the Lord in the parable, in the miracle. And here we find the parable in the miracle of the leper. The leper and the Lord. The leprosy caused, is caused by uh, bacteria, as I can understand it. And I have to be very careful because I, you know, I was one semester in pre-med and I got a D in botany or something, you know, went on to engineering. It was cut and dried, easier to understand. So I have to be careful, a non-medical person trying to give you medical information. So I had to write all this down, but it's caused by a bacteria in the body. But one of the most insidious things I understand about leprosy is you can have that bacteria in your body for three to five years. And in some cases they've determined in a person for 20 years before it manifests itself. So it makes it very difficult to know, well, who were you exposed to? How did you get this? And 
It is manifested with white spots on the skin, mainly on the face, the forehead, and the joints. And the spots eventually penetrate in the cellular tissues into the muscles and bones. The victim loses nerve feelings. And it doesn't attack the brain and the spinal column. It's the extremities. It's the feet and the hands and the eyes and the nasal passages which get affected. And what happens is the person cannot feel anything in the ends of their toes or their fingers anymore. And so when you see those pictures and you read descriptions about the ancients who have leprosy, and even in some countries today, they're, they're missing toes and fingers and hands. Why? Because they don't even feel what they could thrust their hand in boiling water and they will not feel it. And so when those who were exposed to really bad conditions, these people were shoved out outside the camp where there's rodents and other things in the night. There are descriptions of people where the rodents were gnawing at their skin and they didn't feel it. They didn't wake up because they have no nerve endings. Scabs form and then they fall off, but what do they reveal? Running sores underneath. The nails will swell and curl up and even the eyelids and your eyelashes would curl and go in toward your eyeballs. Bleeding gums, diarrhea, incessant thirst, burning fever. Do you, you, get, the, you get the picture? In the Old Testament, the Arabic word means to strike down or scourge. And then it became a phrase, the scourge of God. That's leprosy. In Levitical law, and you can read in Leviticus 13 and 14, the instruction for the removal of a leper. And that is literally how the rabbis spoke. The removal of the leper. It wasn't treatment. It was removal. They, they were made to bear the appearance of a mourner. So they would tear their clothes. They had to have their hair all disheveled, which I think it would be anyway if you lived out in the wilderness. They had to have the lower face and the beard covered with some kind of cloth. And in effect, they go through the town reading their own burial service. Unclean, unclean, they were to shout so that people would know they were coming. And they were made, as I said, to dwell outside the camp to avoid all contact with the living. Why? Because they were considered dead. The rabbis have an extensive catalog, I understand, of remedies for various illnesses. Whether they perform magic or whether they have an incantation or whether they actually have some medicinal means of treating those. But in that extensive catalog, there is no treatment listed for leprosy. They considered it incurable. And even the rabbis, if the leper were to enter a dwelling, they said, even if he were just to poke the head, his head into the door, the entire dwelling and all of the furnishings would be infected. They would be unclean. The phrase was, even up to the beams of the ceiling. And to me, reading these things, it was, I don't know, I thought it was despicable. But the rabbis 
for the most part, when they saw a leper in the streets, they would sometimes throw rocks at them to let them know, you need to stay away from me. Or some of them, simply for fear of encountering a leper, would go and hide. They would hide behind an establishment until he passed by and then come out. But what I want to know in our passage before us, how did this guy get this close to Jesus? Notice it says, and a leper came to him, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him. He, he, he threw himself in Jesus' presence. How did he get there without being noticed or being shooed away or people running away? But I also want to know, is it faith? Or is it simply a humble admission, a submission to him? Is it faith? We know even in our day, you've, you've heard the joke, snake oil salesman, where there are small villages where there are not uh, access to medicine, people would come by, and if you had something and you, you proclaimed it to be a healing uh, potion or whatever, people would flock. They would spend all kinds, you know, good money after bad. Is that what he did? Well, he does force his way to see Jesus, but he is driven. He is driven by a sense of his own misery. He, he was an outcast. He was considered dead. He was going through all of these things that I read. But I don't think it's what he asked, but the way that he asked it. It was a petition and the way that he says it here. If you are willing, you can make me clean. He is making an address as if he is addressing the divine will. He is saying, I am placing my case completely before you. I'm putting it in your hands, Jesus. I am confident of your power. I have heard of the healings that you have done, but I have come to place myself and commit myself to you. I commit to you my helplessness. I commit to you my hopelessness. I commit to you my need. And I believe, as one of the commentators said, that he is willing to remain a leper if Jesus so wills that he does. Now, maybe I'm reading too much in there, but I see faith. But I would ask the question, is this as far as faith can go? Is this the reach of faith? What I hear is, is Romans 7 coming from this man. When, when Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Here is a man who is living death. Don't you hear him saying, wretched man that I am, who, who will free me from this body of death? And yes, there is some hesitation. The leper's hesitation is, if you are willing. He, he says, nothing stands between me and full health and restoration except your will. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Is it, Jesus, is it your will to leave me in this living death? 
One of the commentators used the word convolution, the convolution of, of the, ma the man and, and Jesus and his response. I, I think a better word would be confluence. Uh, confluence is where two things meet, like two rivers meeting. But it's a confluence, and there are several in the world, where fresh water meets salt water. And they don't mix because the densities of the water are different, and, but they do come together. And what we have is a confluence of the brackish, of the salt, the unpure, unclean, with one who is pure, the one who is holy. And they come together and you think, well, they're not going to mix. I mean, look at the phrases here, or look at the, look at the wording. The leper, and you see the motion in Mark, do you not? The leper came to him, falling on his face before the Lord. But what do you see? Jesus was also moved. He was moved with compassion, and he reached out to him. There's motion of each toward each. And then we see him beseeching him and saying something to Jesus. And we see Jesus stretching out his hand, touching him and saying something to him. And he says, if you are willing, and he says, I am willing. And he says, you can make me clean. And he says, be cleansed. Do you see how they meet the unclean and the pure? And yet we know the result is that Jesus was not overcome by the unclean. He was not like those rabbis shoving him away, but he says, I will be clean. So can faith go further than this? Spiritual gifts, we know, come from God. If we pray for peace, for his peace, we will have it from him. We pray for strength to do and to be and it will come to us. We pray for consolation on our grief and our sorrows, and it will come. That is God's will. We read that in his word. Temporal gifts. Temporal gifts God in his wisdom may choose to withhold. I don't stand before you and say that God will heal all diseases and all sicknesses in your lifetime. And yet there will be that day when you will be whole and you will be complete. But I read the parable in the miracle. All miracles, both physical and spiritual, depend on the will of Jesus alone. Jesus came to will, do the will of God. And nothing more displays that will of God than to be able to forgive sin. That's what God wants to do, is to draw people to himself and forgive their sin. And this is the only case that I know of in the scriptures where Jesus says, I will. It's a single word in the Greek, I will. Providentially, we sang Psalm 40 this morning. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that that psalm where it says, I delight to do thy will, oh my God, that is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. He is the one who says, I delight to do thy will, O oh my God. He is the one who taught his disciples to pray, did he not? Our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is he not the one who said to them, you know, 
there are those who say to me, Lord, Lord, but they are not my disciples. It is the one, he says, who does the will of my Father who is mine. And doesn't he say, as he's on his way to the cross, when he prays with great cries and tears, not my will, but thy will be done. That same one who says, I delight in thy will, O my God. What is he saying now? I will. Jesus is the, has the supreme will because he is the supreme authority, because he is God. Here we see it. And, and again, I believe that it sets up and mark everything that's going to proceed from here because they began to recognize exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. And it brings back that question to all of us, but who do you say I am? And here we see he says, I will. And notice the immediate cure. Jesus said, I will be cleansed. He doesn't say, be made clean. He says, be cleansed. And again, I'm, I'm not the greatest in the languages, but there's a, this is an imperative. Be cleansed. But, but I understand reading a book called Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, it, it's an imperative that can't be fulfilled by the recipient. Jesus says, be cleansed. But the man can't clean himself. If he would, he wouldn't be in that state. He cannot do it. And yet it comes true at the very moment it came out of Jesus' mouth. As he was saying, be cleansed, the man was cleansed. But notice, two things, two things in verse 43. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Two things happened there. Uh, I think it's a phrase that I heard from my mother-in-law for the first time. Uh, never heard anybody use this phrase. She would speak of somebody, he doesn't do anything by halves. Jesus doesn't do anything by halves. There's two things. There's the negative, the leprosy left him. But then it says, and he was cleansed. It, it reminds me of that story that Jesus tells about the man who, who had the demon and somehow, you know, he describes him as cleaning his house, the house of his mind almost, where he takes the broom and he sweeps it out and he cleans everything. He uses 409 and Lysol and everything. He gets it all nice and clean. And then what does Jesus say? But then the demons come back more than before and worse than before. He tried to clean himself but he wasn't purified. Yeah, maybe the demon left, but he wasn't clean. And here Jesus, he does both. The leprosy left him and he was clean. And you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but there, there's just something here that, that, that makes me wanna just, you know, I, I want that great day to come. I wanna just go up, turn right, and sit at the feet of Jesus and say, you know, thank you for showing this stuff to us. There, there's a freedom from defilement and pain, but there's a freedom to be socially acceptable again, to be part of the fellowship again. And, and, and it's all in Leviticus. Bear with me, please. 
But Jesus says to him, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Well, what did Moses command? Well, he was supposed to go to be purified, but it could only be formed, performed by a priest. And the priest had to do this outside the camp. You can't bring these guys in the camp. You got to do it outside the camp. But what they were instructed to do was take two birds. And they took some cedar wood and some scarlet wool and some pure water and some hyssop. And they would take one of those birds and they would kill it. And they would take that blood and they would mix it in the pure water and with the wood and the wool and the hyssop and they would sprinkle the blood on the leper and they would sprinkle some blood on the other bird and they would let the bird fly away. And the scriptures help us to understand that one bird is slain its blood is poured into a vessel of pure water mixed to show that the leper would have died because of his uncleanness. That's what would have happened to you, sir, with your leprosy left uncured. But now you are fully and completely healed by being sprinkled by the blood of the bird that was killed in your stead. One bird symbolizes that he laid down his life for the man. But Jesus doesn't do things by halves. The other bird, after being sprinkled, was let free to fly to the camp, to fly to his people, to fly to his nest. Because that bird was restored to a full and vigorous life to fellowship of the living. When Jesus said, be cleansed, he took away the pain and defilement, but he also restored fellowship. He restored life. He restored a living life. And the whole purpose was to restore the person, once considered dead, now to fellowship of the living members of the congregation. Isn't this what we expected from Mark when we read in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Here he is showing us who he is, the majesty, the power, the wonder, and he, yes, the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where did we refer to then? Well, if you might remember, we looked at Malachi 4 because the last of the Old Testament, looking at the new, and what does Malachi say? The son, S-U-S-N, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. Well, guess what? The son, S-O-N, of righteousness has come with healing in his wings. Here he is. First John 1, John writes this, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's the parable and the miracle. <laughs> and so if you are here, if you are here today and you do not know Christ, I would ask you this question, why will you suffer and die in your sins? Why, why, would we, why would you live in this defilement? Can you sense that need? Can you sense that living death? 
And I would say to you, trust him as the leper did. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Trust him. Trust him wholly. Trust him fully. He takes away and cleanses sin. He doesn't work by halves. He paid the penalty and he sanctifies those who are his. He will do both, the negative and the positive. And for those of you who know Christ, who endeavor to walk with him, to, to live a life that pleases him, I'm going to read from Paul in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And he said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And later in verse 4 he says, But God. I love the way our brother David says that. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. See, again, it's not halves. He saved us, but, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the parable in your miracle. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Who do you say that he is? I say that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are things that are almost, almost beyond our ability to hold. We, we are like those who wrote. These are wonders. These are signs. These are mighty works. And this is our God. Please help us worship him, adore him, to understand these things, to proclaim these things, and to enjoy them. We ask that you would do this. Again, use these things to build your church and make her glorifying to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from the book of Titus. In chapter 2 of Titus, Paul writes this, For the grace of God has appeared, and one of those things for which it appeared is he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Amen.